I don't really do traditional advertising or traditional marketing because I know what a what a hoax that is, <laughs> and I know that it just doesn't really work. It's really just a it's a trick that um, a bunch of smart people have convinced a bunch of other dumb people with a lot of money to uh, to invest in. Welcome to the Way Up North podcast. This is where we get to know the speakers presenting at Europe's wedding photography conference, Way Up North. We're not interested in which apertures they use or what they carry in their camera bags. Instead, we aim to get to know them a little bit better as people. My name is Jacob, and in a few moments you'll hear my colleague Cole interviewing Michael Antonia, or The Flashdance. Michael is a founding member of The Flashdance, of Yeah Weddings, and of Yeah Rentals. At Way Up North, you'll see him both in the DJ booth at the closing party and as host for the entire event. Here's Cole's conversation with Michael from a couple weeks back. Uh, I'm guessing that you've been interviewed quite a few times. Probably, probably way more than I've done interviews because I'm not, I'm not <laughs> a pro interviewer. <laughs> But when you've done a lot of interviews, uh, what's one question that you hate being asked? Um, what kind of music do you play? <laughs> so what kind of music do you play? <laughs> uh, um, my sort of stump answer is that I've been collecting records since I was a little kid. I started collecting soul records. It's still like the bulk of my music collection. Soul got me into hip-hop because hip-hop, especially in the late 80s and um, through the late 90s, was sampling old soul records. So it had a real familiar feel to me. Okay. Um, and then through my love of hip-hop, I was introduced to drum and bass. And drum and bass was sort of my gateway drug to all electronic music. So I'm a real, like a, I'm a real gumbo okay. in a lot of ways. Like I, I try no matter where I'm playing or for whom or what kind of direction that they've given me, I try to at least slide a little bit of my own personality in there. I, I kind of work on the um, candy, candy medicine. What does that mean? Model. Well, like, you know, everybody loves pop music or everybody loves, you know, like a specific song that, you know, harks back to when they were a teenager or their golden era, whatever that is. Um, you know, so whether it's new or old, I, I think of pop music as being like candy, right? It's like really easy to digest. It tastes great, but you can't take too much of it or you start to feel like shit. I see. So to me, like the medicine is the real stuff, like whether that's soul or hip hop or it doesn't matter genre. And that's why it kind of bugs me when people ask me that, because I don't think genre matters. What I play is music that's good. So like the events in Rome and, and you'll be the host and like just if I just read your name, I'd think you were Italian. Like, are you Italian? Uh, you know, somewhere deep in the history. OK, so you have an Italian sounding name, but you're not necessarily an Italian. Uh, like uh, one eighth or quarter quarter. Well, who are you? Like, where did you grow up? I grew up in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and that's sort of like a... Uh, it's like a vacation area for rich, snotty, uh, <laughs> um, privileged kids from, you know, New England. 
So um, during the summer, it kind of doubles in, in population. But on the off season, it's still this like amazingly beautiful, sleepy little town. I would imagine you like had an accent. Did it, did it just go away? Like, don't people from out east have like, they don't pronounce R's or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> um, I moved from there when I was 14 with my folks to Seattle. So I really kind of came of age uh, during, you know, grunge when, when grunge really hit. Um, I moved to Seattle in 91, which is when Nevermind came out, when, you know, Nirvana got famous and the world's, you know, looking glass was on Seattle in terms of music. So that's, an, that's like an impressionable time when that came out for a lot of people, especially from that area. So were you a creator? Like, did you hear Nevermind and were like, I'm starting a band? <laughs> I think... Uh, you know, about 70% of the population of Seattle heard Nevermind and started the band. Um, I've played music my whole life. I started playing drums when I was a little kid. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of great drum, or sorry, a lot of great DJs will always kind of say that they at least dabbled in playing drums. It's definitely two things of the same um, end result. But um, yeah, I did. And, and I played music all through high school. And I, one of the things that I realized was that um, I wasn't maybe I wasn't good enough or I didn't want to apply myself enough to be a rock star. I also just thought it was kind of a weird oversaturated world especially in Seattle yeah. and Olympia and Portland and Vancouver and there were just so many bands it was crazy. So um my I think my um real gift was collecting music and finding music that people had never heard before and sharing that with people. So when I found out that you could get paid to play that music in front of people, it was like the light bulb turned on and everything made sense. So when, like, did you have like a defining moment and you're like, I'm going to be a DJ or, or were you look steering your, your life in a different direction? Like what did you kind of like dream of doing when you got older? Um, <clears throat> you know, I studied art in college and I always sort of, viewed myself as an artist as an artist I, w I was a painter and I um I thought that was kind of my trajectory uh but the thing that always stuck and that always kept hitting me in the back of the head no matter what I did was was music and um yeah I sort of had an aha moment about it I um I had a local bar in my neighborhood that I would go to with my fake ID <laughs> when I was 20 and um and there were people in there just during happy hour playing records. They weren't, nobody was dancing. They were just playing good songs and that was it. And then, and that's when I just sort of like had the aha moment and I did everything I could to find out who was in charge of booking that place and, excuse me, and I befriended that person and uh, and asked them for a shot and, and they gave me one and it was a rocky start, but, but it, it gave me the juice and I just started reinvesting all the money that I would make as a DJ into buying more records and it just rolled on, it, on itself like a snowball. So like the DJ world, I'm not going to profess to know a lot about it, but one of the stigmas you hear with DJs is like they're just playing other people's music and they're not creating their own. Is that a stigma that like you've kind of had to deal with, and like, or is that even a stigma at all? Um, it, I think, it really was um, maybe ten, fifteen years ago, and I think that a lot of people have changed their mind about it because of the level of creativity that's gone into doing it. So, like, I'll use a familiar analogy for this audience, which is wedding photography. If you think back, say 10, 15, maybe even 20 years ago, 
Pointing photography was this very one note thing, right? You staged people, they looked at the camera, everyone said smile, and then you took a picture. I've, I've been married for almost 10 years and, and, you know, sort of that's the way our wedding photography was. There wasn't a lot of hyper creativity. There wasn't a lot of um, shots that you see now from some of the leaders in the industry that are just like mind boggling or that are referencing a, a, a famous image from fashion or that have this um, really unique artistic quality to it. And so, so many people have stepped up to bat and said, you know what, we're going to actually put something big into this artistic expression. And I think that's what's happened with, with DJing is that people have really stepped the game up to a level where you're manipulating music, you're playing snippets of songs, you're changing in some cases, changing the very like essence of the song, but having some familiarity, some familiarity to it um, for the audience. And so I don't hear that as much anymore, but when I do, um, I don't feel bad about that because to me, that's what I'm good at. I'm good at choosing music. And I still think of myself more as a selector or as a curator than I do as a turntablist or a <laughs> turntablist, a wild, you know, um, over the top artist of, of sound. So when you, you know, when you've just made the decision that this is your path, like, I'm curious, like what goes through your head at that point? Like you're, you didn't go down the path of being a, a like Axwell or Avicii or Royxkop or something like that. Like you didn't go down that path. You went down a different one. So knowing very little about the DJ, career path like like what when like what's the decision making process like when you're at that early stages in in this career well i don't know that i consciously avoided that i i think at one point i thought that that was my my path but um when i was younger i was doing it more as a hobby you don't make a whole lot of money playing records in a nightclub or a bar it, you know it's it's when you have no expenses, it's maybe enough to skate by on, but I just wanted to spend money on records. So to me, it was just a side hobby. I was, uh, I spent 10 years working in advertising. So it was just something that I did on the weekends and some people knew about, some people didn't. Um, but when I really started to push on it a little bit harder, I always sort of thought, you know, to, to speak to like, why didn't I become a big producer or something? I always thought, well, somebody will come along and scoop me up. And, uh, and the world will be an easy place and they'll take care of me like mom, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and I'll be famous, uh, obviously, because I'm just so great. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's hard to not think that way when you're in your early 20s or whatever. But the reality of it was that um, I had an option. I could continue down the path of working in advertising, which was killing me, um, both mentally and physically, or I could uh, I could take a, a shot at at this, and my particular version of it was a little bit different than I think what you know a, an artist who is setting out specifically to produce music um, and to to gain notoriety through that. I'm I'm not a music producer, and I think you know, all of the artists that you mentioned are famous because of their records, not because of their DJ capabilities. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So you're like, you spent 10 years in the ad world. You have a family now and you're, 
you're a DJ and, and like you're a busy guy with other projects as well. So you oftentimes, or at least at way up north, the first crack we did in Stockholm last October, a lot the question that kept getting asked to the female entrepreneurs was about work-life balance. So I'm curious, like how does work-life balance work for a DJ with a family and other projects on the go? It's hard. Um, you know, I've, I've, um, I've talked pretty extensively about this and I, I have a, a weird tug in my soul about it, you know, because in so many ways, it's such a, it's such a thrill for me to travel and to get the, the feeling that somebody wants me to perform so badly that they pull me around the world. I mean, that, that really is quite an ego boost, you know, to, and like, you know, to have you guys say like, Hey, come on out to Rome and play records. I mean, amazing. And it really does mean the world to me. But then yes, like, you know, I leave my children behind and, um, luckily my wife is, um, freelance and she has a very, very open schedule. So that helps a lot, but yeah, it's, it's tough to, it's tough to do everything. And so, uh, I have to make good choices and luckily, especially the private event world tends to book pretty far out. So I can really consciously make those decisions as to what I want to do. And then I have a number of other DJs who work for me. So if things pop up that, are still good and we still want to be a part of, but, um, I can't personally be there. Then we do that. And then you mentioned like the other projects that I'm working on and other businesses that I have. And I've tried in a lot of ways to make them, um, insulated from me so that I almost have no involvement in their day-to-day operations okay. other than, you know, sort of maybe creative direction and that sort of thing. So you're a brilliant, brilliant middleman. Well, I, I hope so. <laughs> that's, that's really the goal. I think. So Jonas Peterson, um, uh, I think you know him, but if not, he's a wedding photographer from Australia and he's presenting in Rome and he also pre- presented in Stockholm and he comes from the ad world as well. And uh, c- through a few conversations with him, he, he kind of described it as a soul sucking career path a little bit. And you sort of, you didn't say it like that, I don't think, but you said you worked in it for 10 years and it, it just wasn't for you after a while. So what was your ad career like, like? Where was it based? What were you doing? And why did you leave it in the end? Uh, I'll go with soul sucking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I do know. I do know Jonas, and we've talked pretty extensively. We have a pretty similar background, and so uh, it's been interesting to sort of hear his story a little bit more completely. But um, yeah, I started working out uh, it, for a nightclub. Really, that's how I got into it. You know, I was in the music world and happy there. And um, that nightclub morphed into a production company. That production company morphed into an ad agency. Um, And uh, luckily, one of the principals of that ad agency went on to open all the Ace Hotels around the U.S. and now in in London and Panama and and soon in a lot of other places. But... um, so I, I started working for them, and I still do, and that's all. That's been a treat the whole way through. But the ad agency, the ad world, and what was so difficult about it for me personally is, um, no matter where your ideas started, no matter how much time and effort and energy you put into those ideas, no matter how many people signed off and agreed that it was a wonderful idea they were always going to get demolished at some point. And I never, ever saw an, uh, an initiative, a production, an event, 
of any sort start with one concept and end with the same one. And the person who was always held responsible was the person in my seat. <laughs> and so it just sucked your mind and soul and every bit of your energy to spend so much time coming up with good creative, spend so much time and energy and resources and money and every waking moment of your thoughts to to actually execute it and then to have a group of lawyers or a team of insurance companies decide that that just wasn't right for their brand any longer and now it's time to do it this way in the 11th hour and then when the you know final bell struck for the event everyone was standing around going well why the hell didn't that work <laughs> <laughs> and then it was to me to blame and um, what, what I took from that and what I understood was that I had a bunch of really talented people around me. I had a bunch of really talented creatives in my sort of Rolodex, so to speak. And I had the wrong people at the top of the chain. And so I just quit and I stayed friends with all those people who were around me and all those creatives. A lot of them work in this office with me now. Wow. Um, and I traded my you know, paycheck for a hope and a desire for the future and using the skills that we all learned in the ad world, uh, applied those concepts and those ideas and those traditions and those um, disciplines toward a new goal. And the cool thing about it was, is that there isn't a lawyer at the top of that chain. There isn't an insurance company at the top of that chain saying no. And so now we do it. And, Sometimes it works, and that's awesome. We can all pat each other on the back. Sometimes it fails, but at least we know that we got to try it our own way. Now all of a sudden you're self-employed, it sounds like. So if, that is, if that's how you're like, your path went, when you leave the ad world and now you're self-employed, what was like the biggest lesson that you were able to apply as being an entrepreneur from day one, out of the gate? I, I don't know that it was quite, quite like that. I, I decided, I made a conscious decision to stop working in the ad world and to start trying to work in this world. My wife had a full-time um, corporate job and then all of a sudden she got pregnant. And that, I think, you know, in talking to a lot of friends of mine who are, um, who have children, that seems to be that, that big U-turn in the road where you're just like, Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I got to figure something out. And that was, that was it for me. And it, it gave me that extra push, you know, and I, I talked about earlier, like I talked about studying art in school and playing music and whatnot. And um, the thing that always turned me off about those ideas was that you had to somehow commodify it, right? You had to come up with a way to sell yourself and to sell yourself as an artist. And the thing that to me is really difficult about that is that I never really wanted to be a salesman, <laughs> you know? I never wanted to learn how to um, push myself. Like I said, I always thought that somebody was going to come along and be my, like, you know, my angel and just, like, pull me <laughs> along and do all of the hard work for me. So I think if to answer your question, the thing that I learned or the thing that changed in me was the desire, or not even the desire, the, the knowledge that I could do it. So to decide, you know, I grew up in a house that my, my parents always said, you know, you can do whatever you want, whatever you put your mind to, you can, you can accomplish. And I think a lot of people have heard this. And 
it didn't mean anything to me until that moment um, that I just had to, you know, sort of like tighten my belt and push. And that's, that is really the big, the big lesson. That is the big lesson in all of this to me. So like, okay, for, I guess creatives in general are working in like the gig economy and, and you yourself were from day one, you, you still are right now. So like as a creative, like, how do you do that push? Like, what were you doing to, to get gig after gig? Well, um, I'll say that I was pretty lucky in the beginning. Um, one of my very closest friends, Whitney Chamberlain, who owns uh, Our Labor of Love, was pretty well established in the industry. He and I have worked together for almost 15 years now, going all the way back to the nightclub and the production company and the ad agency. And he pushed and convinced me to, to start DJing at weddings, which sounded terrible to me at the time. And, um, and he sort of said, no, 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 look, it's not, it's not like that. It's actually, you know, you can find your own lane and you can do something really cool with this. And you could be the person to actually kind of start to change this. And I didn't really believe him at that time. But then, you know, he sort of put me on in a way and he convinced some of his clients to hire me and it was cool because he was living on the other side of the country from me, and so we'd get to hang out. And so all of it sort of made sense at the time. Um, but he and his wife also had a pretty big blog following, and um, it was sort of like they they sort of were in a, in a way that kind of angel I was looking for yeah. in the sense that they sort of said, "Well, this guy's great. You'll love him. Just do it." <laughs> and it, and it worked. And then I I continued to push down the down the road as well. So. Um, I don't know that there was one specific thing that changed it. Um, I still hustle for gigs. I still um, am constantly working to get the next echelon. I'm still regularly um, pushing just as hard as I did when I was in my 20s. It's just that I have the security of um, more regular gigs now. Sounds like Whitney's the godfather of weddings. Because <laughs> Brian from Shark Pig, he said something similar along. Uh, some somewhere he said something similar about Whitney kind of giving him a push and Logan Cole who I spoke with recently kind of said something similar about Whitney so sounds like he's the guy to to get to know well the thing about Whitney and at his core regardless of what job he's doing is that he's a he's a connector and he's he likes to bring people together he likes to bring people together around him but just in general he likes to bring people together and so he finds creative ways to make it stick and uh, and that's something that I think we can all learn from and that we can all take from is that um, if we're collecting people, collecting talented people, um, we're never going to go hungry. Interesting. Wow. So you have a very democratic kind of approach to entrepreneurship, it sounds like. Well, that's what the Flashdance is predicated on. It, it started as a real true collaborative effort um, and a collective in the very truest sense of the word. We're not business partners. We all own our own individual companies, but we all act as if we're business partners in the sense that the moment somebody needs something, we're all you know putting our hands up to help, and that goes around the room. Um, and then we're all you know collectively brainstorming and working on creative projects together. So what what that enables us to do is to all have our own individual things and to all be able to have a collaborative spirit and to not get caught up in um, the stickiness of sharing money. 
So in a collaborative environment, when you work that way, um, your personalities that you bring to the table is kind of the point of this type of collaboration, I think, because different personalities will bring different strengths and benefit the group. So what do you think you're bringing to that type of collaborative environment from a personality perspective? Um, I think that, I hope everyone would agree. I think that everyone would agree that I'm sort of the pragmatic one in the group. I'm the person who says no a lot more than I say yes. And I'm um, a little bit more focused, um, you know, in terms of like the real goal here is to turn a creative idea into something that will support either us as people or our friends or our families. And whether that's through money or through um, further creative projects or whatever, um, there has to be a clear path. Now, somebody like Whitney or Brian, for instance, who I work with here in this office, are, are a little bit more dreamer based and a little bit more on like the higher creative creative level based where they're spending a lot of time thinking about the way things could work or if they could possibly work this way or what would happen if we do this and then I'm kind of I kind of tend to be the filter at the bottom of the cone so to speak where the things kind of flow through and I you know say yes or no (laughs) Um, because I think I think it's important to have the hyper creative dreamer but there has to be somebody keeping it in check or there's just, there's a lot of loose ideas out there. Yeah. Like not to, this is about you, not me, obviously this conversation, but my working relationship with, with Jakob is exactly like that. I, I would be the Brian and you would be the Jakob. He's, he's, uh-huh. he's good at killing shitty ideas. Yeah. <laughs> so what are some of the other projects that you have on the go? Because I know that you're not just doing DJing. Yeah, so four years ago, I started a, a mid-century modern furniture rental company called Yeah Rentals, and um, that's been wonderful for me. That that harks back to Whitney and I's production days when we, um, you know, we used to do big events and big uh, experiential events when experiential was still a pretty new word. And what we would do is, you know, in a lot of sense, in a lot of instances is is to convert like large raw spaces into very hospitable spaces for like um, large dot coms and big fortune 500 companies so they had very very high expectations of the way a a space would look and feel and they especially wanted these spaces that no one had ever been to before so a very unique experience and the one stumbling block over and over and over again was always furniture rental it was always the glowing white cube or the like um, like glossy patent leather, like white couch, just like 90s nightclub reject furniture over and over and over again. That's, and it's still that way in a lot of ways. Um, so in those days, we started collecting mid-century modern furniture, uh, you know, and storing it for our own events. Wow. And that really like taught me something because we would pull that furniture out and we were the only people who had it and people would come to us over and over again and say like, Oh, you guys have to do the event. Cause I know it'll look this certain way. And, um, and I just started collecting that. I've always collected it in my home and I started collecting it, um, for my businesses and for our office. And, and it just was like a natural move. So we started doing that four years ago. Um, last year as a result of doing hundreds and hundreds of events with, 
really old furniture. <laughs> a lot of it was destroyed, and um, I started designing pieces to replace those pieces. So they would be similar in their application, but you know, of more sturdy materials and of uh, higher quality. And so we started designing pieces, and and finally came to the point where we had enough pieces to call it a line. So I launched a furniture line called Yeah Furniture. <laughs> Um, you got a lot then, of hats, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the flash dance, for those who don't know, started out as, a, like I said, a collaborative effort between our labor of love and myself, and so hence the name flash dance, um, oh. yeah, photography and music, yeah. and um, and then we've added several services along the way: videography through Shark Pig and furniture through. Um, yeah, rentals and of course smile booth and um, one of the things that happened is our little like company that we started together so that we could all work together all the time and have fun got to a point where we were unable to get booked together all the time and now it's getting fewer and fewer and further between we're always traveling or maybe the budget doesn't allow for all of us to be together so we decided to start an additional um uh, collective and we call that yeah weddings so it's our um, assistants and our younger um, associates or people who have worked in the office or worked around us as PAs or whatever who've come up and decided well you know now I want to be the DJ or now I want to be the videographer or now I want to be the photographer and so we've put them all together and started booking packages that way as well and it's really been great because we're getting back to sending four or five people from our team out to the same event or the same wedding and, and they all get to work together. And, um, as you can imagine, that's fun for them, but it's also pretty helpful to have a video team and a photography team who are closely related and work together all the time. Um, and then, you know, a lot, in a lot of cases, the weddings, especially that have smaller budgets are in a lot of instances, a lot more creative, a lot more, do it yourself a lot more um, on the leading edge of uh, new trends and things. So we're able to um, uh, document that and, and that's more exciting for blogs. It's more exciting for new brides. It's more exciting for us to be quite honest. So, so that's the fourth one. Well, it like just, this is like the second time we've ever spoke. So it's not like we're uh, like, we know each other that well, but both times that I've spoken with you, you're clearly like an intelligent guy who's, you know, practical and does things with a plan and a real purpose. So that's my observation, at least. So when has adversity or uncertainty kind of crept into your career as an entrepreneur? And if you have a specific example, like what did you do to get out of that? And I ask that question because I think a lot of people who listen to this, like they're entrepreneurs and you're making it sound kind of effortless to do all these things. So how do you deal with adversity? And if you have a specific example of that, I would be curious to hear it. Oh, man. I mean, every day. Like I said uh, a few minutes ago, I still hustle just as hard as I did when I was just trying to get a job at happy hour in some small bar in Seattle to play records. It None of this is easy. It's gotten easier to talk about, <laughs> and it's certainly gotten easier to... Um, add some of my my principles in because we have a little bit more job security now. But, um, you know, there's a quote that, like, it's uh, it's one thing to, to rise to the top. It's quite another to stay there. 
Well, it and, sounds like the tides with you are a, a, an incoming tide lifts all boats, and you have the entire harbor in the wedding world. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, I, I mean, I can understand how that may seem that way, but at the end of the day, I still only have myself to rely on. And if, um, you know, if, when I do have the access to my peers and friends and, and their Rolodexes and their creative spirit, that's great. And I, you know, I'll always champion that, but at the end of the day, I really still have to do it myself. And, um, I still had to, you know, invest pretty much my entire savings into starting yeah rentals. I didn't know if that was going to work or not. That could have really fallen pretty flat on my face with, um, you know, a very small child and another one on the way. Um, you know, that's a pretty big risk no matter how many friends you have. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, it's still, it's every day, every day we're still trying to figure out how to make payroll and pay taxes and do all of the other bullshit that every other business has to do. It's may seem easy or look, you know, wildly successful from the outside, but we still battle the same exact instances. And so, um, to, uh, a new entrepreneur starting out, I think the important thing is, is really just to continue pushing your art forward, even when you think you're doing great. When you think you're at the top of the hill, you need to look up and realize that there are a lot more mountains up there. And to me, a big one is staying new and staying um, fresh and staying relevant. And all of those things require a relentless amount of work uh, as an artist, not just as an entrepreneur. I think too many people choose one side or the other, and I know it's unique and, and very uh, difficult for people to understand when somebody can do both, but it doesn't come easy, that's for sure. So you have an interesting, uh, well, I think you have an interesting perspective um, given your connection to the wedding world, uh, specifically the wedding photography world, because you're, you're, you're not a wedding photographer, but you're, you have a deep connection with the wedding photography world. So from your perspective, art aside, where do you see a lot of wedding photographers, uh, entrepreneurial behavior, um, failing them? Man, I, you know, I'll, I'll probably take some heat for saying this, but I'll just go ahead and say it. The thing that drags the hardest for me that really it just feels bad in my soul when I see it is the wedding photographer who is moping around and complaining, who claims that they work too hard and that they're not, um, you know, being respected by the coordinator or by their client or whatever. And to me, like I look at somebody who, and I'm talking about in the upper echelon, not just, you know, a regular Joe, but, you know, somebody who's making eight, ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 to come and shoot photographs for one day. You should have a smile the size of America on your face when you're getting that, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and if you don't, then you're doing the wrong thing. And, you know, I think so often what I hear is, you know, oh, this year I'm going to do a lot less weddings and get into commercial work. And that one always really cracks me up <laughs> because I spend so much time in the commercial world and I ditched it to be in the wedding <laughs> So Jonas and I have had some pretty good laughs about that one because it just seems like the, you know, the... Um, 
most common thing for the wedding photographer to to sort of like um, put a put a big shiny bow on and think is the you know the be all end all is to be able to shoot commercial photography when in fact it's just brutal work <laughs> that uh, you're not going to make as much money doing unless you're a really really special person. So um, that's one, um, and and that you know I try to. I don't really have any control over who hires what photographer, but it, the the ones that I am friends with and that I remain close with are the ones who feel blessed to do their job every day. And I'm one of those people. And uh, man, when I go to play records and somebody's going to pay me several thousand dollars to do it, I am like the happiest person alive. And the fact that I can, you know, make people happy and get paid well for doing it and man, especially like in the wedding industry in general, people are just so gracious and kind and sweet and coming from, especially like the nightclub world um, and, you know, music festivals and bigger music productions and things, managers and booking agents and club owners and club managers are assholes. They're just miserable people. They're drug addled, drunk, you know, really just genuinely unhappy people. So to come to the wedding world and see so rainbows and butterflies faces who are just like, Oh man, Michael, how are you doing? I'm like, <laughs> um, so to me, like attitude is, is the biggest one. But as far as like the entrepreneurial thing, um, I think, you know, it's, it's hard to avoid this in a lot of ways, but I think the, the mimicry in the wedding photography world is a really, really big problem. And, um, it's the same in the DJ world and, and everybody has a little element of it. Everybody's trying to emulate the people who they love and respect. I'm no different. Um, but the approach is a little hard to take sometimes when you just see like absolute exact copies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, in your line of work, like all the things that you mentioned that you do, it, it feels to me like it boils down to, um, to your taste. You know, you, you curate the things you see in the world and your taste is what's people are drawn to that. Like it's your furniture, it's your taste in music, et cetera, et cetera. You got fantastic taste. Do you think of that as like an asset in any way? And if, and I'm wondering if you do, like, do you use that in, in a, in a marketing way and like on Pinterest or something like that? Or maybe that's a weak example, but do you like market your taste? Um, yes, I, I, I don't really do traditional advertising or traditional marketing um, because I know what a what a hoax that is, <laughs> and I know that it just doesn't really work. It's really just a it's a trick that um, a bunch of smart people have convinced a bunch of other dumb people with a lot of money to uh, to invest in. But um, yeah, what what I try to put out in the world is stuff that looks and feels a certain way, certainly. But more than that, um, that is against the grain of what most people would expect. So, excuse me, if you look through um, the websites of, you know, DJs who do private events or mobile DJs or specifically wedding DJs, you're going to see the same two or three things over and over again. You know, really poorly executed design, um, really standard, um, safe, content and um and very little creativity it's just more like hey i got some music and i'd like to come over to your place and get paid a lot to play it 
and I'll be cheaper than the other guy. And like, it's just this very one dimensional thing. So to me, um, all of our marketing, all of our advertising for the flash dance is specifically geared towards art, um, and specifically geared towards culture. And that accomplishes two things. One, um, it sets us apart, which is great. But, um, but I think even more importantly than that is that it immediately opts out of a whole demographic of clients that I don't want anything to do with. And so if the, you know, the bride or the corporate planner or the event coordinator see that wants something really safe and really standard and really, you know, average sees our work, they're immediately like, no, he's too hipster, or he's too cool, or he's too whatever, you know. Mission accomplished. Right, and there you go. Like, you know, there's something like 30,000 weddings a day in the U.S. alone, on average, all year long. <laughs> and, Holy shit. I mean, we're trying, to, we're trying to capture a couple a week, you know. So, and, and you know, thankfully, you know, knock on wood, uh, worldwide. So, um you know, we're really trying to be specific about the people that we get so that the word of mouth is more people that we want to work for in the future and collaborate with and, you know, have come to our um, events. So, so we've, we spoke for about 40 minutes here and it's been pretty much about like your career. And I bring that up because I'm curious, like, <clears throat> do you have a is this you like, is, are you like a totally entrepreneur business dude? Like hundred percent of the time or like, or are you driven by business constantly or do you really separate that part of your life when you leave the office at, at five or whatever? Um, both. I'm, I'm definitely a workaholic by nature and I always have been, uh, I enjoy working I, and I think about it quite a bit. Um, but one of the things that, comes from having children so I have two small children uh, two girls four and seven um, is the ability to be dad as well and um, even when that's hard even when I'm in the middle of a production or when I'm stressed out or I'm concerned about some of the things that we mentioned earlier whether it's taxes or payroll or whatever um, so one of the things that I've tried to do to compartmentalize that is to really shut off at five o'clock every day you know, unless there's something really, really um, extreme happening. Um, Are you uh, able to actually do that? Because it sounds nice. And it sounds yeah, like something. Um, with with few exceptions, I definitely do. It's 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 not just important. It's everything to me. Like I can't. I'll 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 never get back this time. And so if I waste it on a, a client. <laughs> I've really done my whole family a disservice. So my goal is, is to go home and shut my phone off and put it on top of the refrigerator, like in a box so far oh, away from reach that I can't possibly get to it. Um, at the very least from that period of five until 8 PM when the kids go to sleep, if I can't, you know, with the amount of time and energy that I put into work, if I can't spend two or three hours with them uninterrupted a day, then I'm a total disgrace. Oh man, you're making so me, you're, I'm starting to feel like a bag of shit here because I have two kids. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Uh, oh, man, man, this podcast is done. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, look, man, I mean, I, I think that that's a big deal. I travel a lot, I'm away a lot, and I work a ton. And so those are the, that's the time that I have with them, and that's what I have to do to make it work. And then I also have a wife, and, you know, man, she wouldn't be around for too much longer if all I did was think about work and then travel on the weekends. Like, have so, you, I'm curious um, about, I'm really curious about I can, that. It doesn't mean I can do it every single day, but that is the goal. That's what I, what I try to do. Okay. So now I'm asking you this because I'm like personally con- curious, like, did you have to change something about yourself to make that adjustment? If, like with your wife, for example, like, were you the kind of guy who couldn't turn it off and you just had to like draw the line in the sand one day? Like, or, or did you just naturally have the ability to turn it off when you're with your wife, for example? Uh, well, look, it's a work in progress. And like I said, it's, you know, it's not something that happens every single day. I, I'm not perfect by any means. And, um, you know, before we had children, we had a lot more free time on our hands. And so it didn't become such an issue until after we had children. And then, like I said earlier, like, you know, when, when my wife was pregnant with our first daughter, that was sort of the kickstart into gear that really got all of the businesses off the ground. And, you know, so one sort of fed the other in a way. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've had long conversations about it. We've had, you know, moments where we get on each other's nerves because one or the other of us is spending those precious moments on our phone. Mm. And, you know, it's an ongoing deal. We have to do it, do it all the time. And I think that that's true of any parent um, yeah. or anyone in a relationship of any sort. Um, so I'm not claiming that I, you know, I'm the winner of this prize that I do it every single day and that I'm flawless. No, no. Uh, I am saying that it's in the forefront of my mind when I'm on my way home, I'm trying to squeeze those last few minutes of texting or, or phone calls or, or whatever in so that I can shut it off for a couple of hours. So I guess one last question is uh, what are you expecting with Rome and the event? Because uh, you've been to a lot of events, and I'm curious, like uh, you said, you, you you okay? Let me back up. Let me, let me back up. You get a lot of um, projects pitched your way because of the the many hats that you wear with the different businesses you have, and you said that you'd come to this one, which we're very excited about. So I guess what are you expecting with this event, and and why did you say yes to this uh, host duty or DJ duty? Um, I'm expecting that people uh, lose their minds and <laughs> completely freak and, uh, you know, go all out because that's what I, you know, expect from every event. Uh, why did I take it? Because Rome's the best city on the planet. I love it there so much. I'm so excited. I can't wait to go. Um, but then also, like, I'm stoked to have so many friends. You know, you, like you mentioned, uh, Jonas will be there, uh, Brian, Logan. Um, and then there are new people that I haven't met yet. And, um, so, you know, I'm always excited about spreading the gospel of what it is that I do as, a, as an artist and as an entrepreneur. Um, but I'm also always like really stoked for a dance party. And I find that, um, of all the parties that I do every year, the ones that are mostly attended by wedding photographers go the hardest. <laughs> nice. You guys are a, a repressed bunch. <laughs> <laughs> and you need to just let it out. So um, I'm there. I'm there to help with that release. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we're really stoked that you're coming, man. Uh, and stoked about this conversation, too. I think, I mean, you're a DJ and you do a lot of other things, but I think wedding photography, wedding photographers 
should have picked up a lot of tidbits from this past hour. So I, I certainly did. Oh, great, man. That's all I can hope for. Thanks. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for uh, this conversation. We'll uh, see you online and uh, keep in touch leading up to Rome. All right, brother. Thanks for your time. All right, cool, man. We'll talk soon. That's Michael Antonia, the DJ and host at Way Up North in Rome, April 2016. If you're interested in more details about Michael or about Way Up North, head over to our website www.wayupnorth.co. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram under at Way Up North and on Twitter and Snapchat under at Way Up North event. Thanks for listening and talk soon. is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Hi folks, this is Rick Wilson from The Daily Beast's The New Abnormal. And I'm Molly Chongfest, a left-wing pundit and editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. I'm also an editor-at-large at The Daily Beast, a former Republican political strategist, best-selling author, and full-time troublemaker. Every Tuesday and Friday, we have fun, sharp conversations with people like Mary Trump, who revealed why her uncle is the worst president we've ever had. Or Ben Stiller on how the world of comedy is changing thanks to our political landscape. Tune in to The New Abnormal to hear us have fun conversations about a world gone mad. Acast is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.